Uh, welcome to Atisography and the last interview for the Tears of Fear season and, and what an interview to get with the great Ian Stanley. I'm chuffed beyond measure to get this interview. Uh, when I started doing doing the chats, it didn't even occur to me to think about getting Ian Stanley because he doesn't do interviews, doesn't really like talking about it by this time. Um, and it's mainly thanks to David Bates I managed to get it. Uh, I got an email contact with Ian and, and basically it turned out that my chat with David Bates was, was an audition really to see if, if Ian would be interested uh, and also thank you to David who actually emailed Ian directly during our interview and uh, obviously cut that bit out uh, everyone who, who loves Tears of Fears including all you gorgeous listeners listening right now will know what a massive figure Ian Stanley was during their most successful period during the big chair period co-writing five of the eight songs on the album and we go through all the songs over these two episodes but also he was someone who was there right at the very beginning of the decade and right towards the end with sessions for seas of love so there's a lot to cover there's a lot to say uh, and i'll say it's probably my favorite interview i've done so far uh, the three hours 40 just flew by very funny honest revealing and uh, and this is the first part so enjoy my interview with uh, ian stanley Part one of the interview begins now. So, do you do all this yourself? Like, yes, right? it's just, just, um, it's just me. It's just me. So, yeah, that's why the episodes take so long. I don't know if you've seen the episodes I've released. I've done like ten in thirteen months. It takes quite a long time to research and edit and everything. So, doing more interviews means I can get more more episodes out. So, that's, that's the aim. No, I mean it's great. You know, I think what you're doing is great. I can see that it would take a long time. I mean, podcasts. I don't really. I sort of listen to a few every now and then. Which ones do you listen to? Are there any you listen to uh, every episode? Nothing, of? nothing. I listen to your, you know, obviously the Tears ones, or most of them. And then I was listening to Roland talking to Gary Kemp. Yes, and, the Rock and uh, Tours. That was a good interview, actually, yeah. Yeah, I was really surprised, you know. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> why were you surprised? Well, I was... Why was I surprised? A, I know I know a Guy very well, the bass player, you know, yeah. um, Guy and his wife, Gaia, we used to live close to each other in London. But of course, there are so many uh, connections from where I didn't know Guy had played on some of the, um, you know, some of Roland's stuff, whereas I used to use him as a session player quite often. And then Gary Kemp, who I don't know at all, I've met him a couple of times, but I don't really know. He was quite matey with Roland, but we used to take the piss out of Spandau Ballet more than anyone you know, they were our yeah. sort of bête noire. Oh, were they the one band you like really kind of... Yeah, they, yeah. Were, they, were, they were the joke band. It's good to know. <laughs> uh, strange, well, strange, yeah. strange you didn't bring that up during the conversation. Well, isn't it just... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, you know, that was just back in sort of the bitchy sort of... Uh... Yeah, no, I never quite got Tony Hadley as a as lead singer. He always seemed oh, a bit was... cabaret to me. Oh, hugely. You know, and then riding this sort of fashion type thing but you know he's a talented boy Gary but then also seeing them doing this mad Nick who's the drummer Nick whatever his name is from Floyd doing this crazy band they're doing doing Saucer Full of Secrets and yes oh, uh, Nick Mason yeah yeah Nick Mason I was, <laughs> have you seen it no no I haven't no. oh my god they did there's a show on tv I think it was yeah it was I was watching on tv where they recorded the Roundhouse and then doing Source Full of Secrets and uh, I don't know, all those, the first two Pink Floyd albums anyway. And that's all they did. 
right? And they're, so they're the maddest records, you know. <laughs> and see Gary Kemp and I understand why Guy's doing it. He's, That's a weird fit, Gary Kemp and early Pink Floyd. It is mental. Yeah. Have a look at it. It's on. So does uh, he sing? He sings the songs? Yeah, yeah. Him and Guy sing. Him mainly. Wow. He's singing, you know, like all those Astronomer Domini and it might be before your time, but early Pink Floyd stuff that is really insane stuff. Yeah, Pink. I was never on the Pink Floyd boat. I was. I, I stood on the shore watching it leave, and I never kind of caught up with it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so you still live in Bath, is that right? Because uh, David Bates was saying how uh, David you were. There's yes. another thing. Three hours yes. of Bates. I know. <laughs> Glutton for punishment, eh? <laughs> you are kidding me? I mean, I don't think we ever did more than ten minutes in <laughs> for twenty years. Uh, uh, <laughs> hilarious. Although he does have a lot to say, I know. He was very honest about, you know, regrets he had during the time. Yeah. He's a very, very honest, honest, you know, he's, <laughs> he's quite a confused person, but, um, well, not confused, you know, he's, he's brilliant. One of the best animal men ever, but a, a very angry man, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what, when was the most honest he was during the 80s with Tears of Fears? Oh, was like, he, oh, he'd be like telling you stuff that, like, if you, if you, sometimes as an A&R man, you want to encourage people or you know it's like carrot and stick or you stacked yeah it was always stick you know <laughs> what the fuck are you doing with that fucking day fucking rubbish and it was just like where you down, you know and roland obviously got the most of it and it, it got quite nasty at times it's why he's not credited on uh songs from the big chair which is, is he quite, not credited at all not at all I never and that noticed that. very very painful for him and that was a deliberate act on Curtin Rowan's part saying yeah. that you've, you've really yeah absolutely. absolutely it was because if you look at all his other acts and all his other records it's A&R by Dave Bates which was quite it's, whether A&R men should get credits on records that's, that's another conversation isn't it so I always assumed that the contentiousness started from the big chair tour on but he said it actually was there during the recording of big chair as well yeah I mean he, he used to, I mean he was he'd uh He'd come down quite a lot, but he was like, he, I think the whole thing with fading, editing, shout, that whole thing from going from the six and a half minute version to the radio version, which is, it's fairly straightforward. You said, you know, it's like, we were all pretentious about it and go, no, you can't touch it. You can't touch it. All that. Mm. But you, they were dead right. Of course you had to have something you could play on radio, you know especially in America. But uh, I remember that as, it's just, that was a particular nasty argument, but he would, yeah, I can't, I can't remember. He just always used to argue with him. Always. It was just, he was a very argumentative, <laughs> angry guy. And I love him dearly, but um, you know. It's like some people operate best, isn't it? Some people need an argument to like get themselves going. Yeah, some yeah. people are motivated by that. Needing that yeah. little bit of edge just to, yeah, clearly that was. Yeah. That was I'll tell you like his reputation. We used to like on tour, We'd arrive, say, in Australia, and I'm actually particularly in Sydney, we flew into Sydney. The record company would meet you to, you know, take you to the hotel or whatever normally. And the, like quite often there would be someone from the record camp company going, is Bates with you? <laughs> you know, like scared <laughs> that, <laughs> that Dave was with us traveling because he had been shouting at them on the phone <laughs> before for, you know, the last two months, which is his brilliance. And a lot of our success in America was down to Dave just on the phone or going over there, kicking down doors. And Yeah, that's the upside from being that kind of pushy, isn't it? He does get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but normally that would be, I suppose, a manager's 
job or something, but he he took it he took it on. Everything was so personal with Dave, you know. Uh, yeah, but he's great and uh, a hugely brilliant A and R man. I could I could talk for an hour about him. Actually, like he could. Oh, I could talk about Dave. I mean, he's so, <laughs> Chris would know him inside out, but the relationships and dynamics between Dave and Chris, Dave and Roland, less me and Dave really. Actually. So your story with Tears of Fear starts. Oh, by the way, I'm in yeah. Ireland. I'm not in Bath. Um, oh, you're not in Bath now. No, I live in Ireland. Oh, okay. So I'm in uh, just uh, in the. Uh, it's called the Wicklow Mountains. Yeah, it's great actually. Is it as picturesque as it sounds? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, Ireland is great. I've been here nearly twenty years now. Yeah, it's lovely. It's fabulous. But uh, Bath. Dave still lives in Bath, does he? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's just talking about how many rock stars live there, like Midjew and most of Ultravox. So yeah. Like, Tears of Fears came from Bath. Most of Ultravox. They're the, like two big bands of the eighties were Ultravox and Tears of Fears. Was... I think they they all have a Bath connection. I live like thirty minutes away. Right, so let's start. Is it? I guess it was nineteen eighty one was when you first met them. This was at the famous um, vegan restaurant in Bath. Was that the very first time you had contact with them and met them, or was there an earlier interaction? Uh, I, I'm not sure. It could. It probably was because I've been told that so many times. So I can't really remember another meeting or another introduction or whatever. I I I was working. I say working. I had met the rest of his ex-band graduate, uh, Roland Kurtz. And I was, I say, yeah, sort of not writing songs, but messing around with them as they were desperately trying to survive without <laughs> Roland's songwriting, which clearly wasn't going to go very far. And Roland and Kurt were obviously still in, they, I think they they were making a song called Suffer the Children with David Lord in Crescent Studios in Bath. So that they were... They had left and were doing the going forward as such, but they were obviously in that they were interested in their ex band. Who at some point we had, do you know Tony Hatches? Yes, downtown. Okay, his son, his son was the lead singer of Graduate, joined Graduate after Curtin Rowland left. (laughs) They carried on after Curtin Rowland left, they carried on uh, without any record. Well, yeah, I'm sure. No, they definitely didn't have a record. I mean, I mean, Graduate with Curtin Rowland wasn't like do you know what I mean so like so graduate without Kurt and Roland couldn't have been more average apart from somehow Tony Hatchin is I think his wife was a songwriter as well so anyway he wrote the theme music to Crossroads yeah absolutely yes so his son turns up and he's suddenly the lead singer and and they did like a couple of gigs I remember in fact I think that's where I met Roland they would they did a gig at Bath University and I think I met Roland and Kurt, or maybe just Roland, at that gig. Did you know who he was? Because he was... Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. I I was aware of, you know, like, he was the graduate album, and the fact they'd had a small bit of radio play. I don't know, was it... They didn't have any hit singles, did they, or did they...? No, but Elvis Should Play Scar was kind of semi-well-known, I think, at the time. So that was was a hit in Spain, I think that was... (laughs) That was really poor. There was another one that wasn't bad with a flute on it. I remember that. Um, I haven't met a day. That's, that's quite jaunty. Yeah. Little pop song, but nothing to uh, show what was going to come. <laughs> no, it's not exactly shout, is it? No. <laughs> that's what you said. 
<laughs> but anyway, yeah, so yeah, met Roland Kurt. Maybe I did meet them first in Mars, I can't remember. But I had a, a, a sort of four track, maybe an eight tracks tape recorder at that time and a couple of keyboards, synthesizers, which was always, that's what I was interested in. And I'd had a small four track studio for a few years before that. But I don't know, we were talking and I asked them if they wanted to record. Not that I could knew how to make a record or anything, but we could, you could sort of record four tracks or eight tracks, which to anyone without any gear at all is an amazing thing, right? You know, mm. obviously no computers now. Now you can do it on your phone. I mean, even synthesizers at the time wouldn't have been that common, would they? So to know somebody with a quality synthesizer. That, yeah, exactly. And it was a, it was a Roland JP4. That was definitely what the, the main one anyway, which basically gave us Pale Shelter. Because we did these, they came up to the house and we did these three demos and they were Mad World, Pearl Shelter and Change. For me, I hadn't come across anything that good, original. So were they, were they acoustic guitar? Yeah, songs? they, they, yeah, I think, uh, I think they were because, I mean, maybe Roland played them on an electric, but pretty much, oh, then he had that little, that, was change i'm not sure if change was one of them that might have come a bit later yeah i can't really remember but definitely pearl shelter mad world because we were really experimenting with these synthesizers and the jp4 had this sequencer in it which went which could do the pearl shelter rhythm and and that was it really i mean i wish i had those demos i really wish i had those demos when did you last hear them? On the- yeah, I don't know. See, I think, I mean, I think they're the they're the demos that got them signed to Phonogram, or did, they, or they had, a, or maybe not. Maybe well, they, they had Suffer the Children, and then it was they must have had a singles and Pell Shelter as well. So the Pell Shelter you did with them was what they submitted as a demo, wasn't it? Yeah, with the Suffer yeah, the yeah. Children. So I, what I'm trying to work out, yeah, from reading up is Suffer the Children has synthesizers on it so it still yeah. has that element but i assume so they already had that in their mind to use synthesizers before they met you i would have thought or, so yeah but that, once no, you got somebody involved who's has yeah. synthesizers and uses them that would have like made it yeah. no i think that's a bit of synchronicity they were yeah. definitely keen on synthesizers uh and in fact suffer the children i think is all synthesizers that david lord had done who was produced it you know in, in crescent They were fascinated by them as much as I was, basically. And drum machines were just coming out then. Yeah, ironically, in the, so as we went on over the years, Roland loved keyboards and synthesizers, and I started liking guitars more, mm. which is mm. where Shout pretty much became a rock song because I liked rock guitars. Right, know? and same with Chris Hughes as well. He was pushing for more guitars. That was like the... Uh... Uh, he says that, that's all bullshit. Oh, is it really? Okay, we'll get to that. Okay, so hold fire on that one. So when you were recording the Pearl Shelter demo, yeah, was, like, did Kurt play bass on that or was it all just synthesis? Oh, uh, I'm sure he did, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
he, he so was it the three of you playing at the same time or were you just no it would have been we'd have put down a click track or maybe the sequence of pearl shard you know the, the mm-hmm. single note sort of sequence and then overdubbed and with a four track or eight track you sort of do a couple of things, then bounce it together and then do a couple more things to free up the tracks all the time. There wouldn't have been much on it, just like four or five things with a drum machine, you know. But certainly enough to give the songs and whatever was on it was definitely on the finished version. It was like you take that, the basic building blocks were there. For instance, there was a thing on like Mad World, you know, the um, click, click, click. The mm, yeah, thing, right? Which is it's, it's really it's it's, it's uh, siren sound. As, it were. as soon as you hear that, you know what it is. That was a uh, an old drum machine, one of those sort of organ drum machines, put through a harmonizer that I had, which you had to move manually to get the different intervals. Sorry if that's a bit complex, but everyone says it was a, we sped it up and sped it down. It wasn't. It was through a MXR harmonizer. <laughs> okay, so did you find that? Is that your? I had a, that as a bit of gear. It was uh, yeah. you know, just a, a, a bit of thing, and we were just God no, I think whoever plugged it in, you know, it wasn't like oh let's do that. It was like Jesus, li- listen to that, you know, that's weird. Yeah. And then doing the the trumpets on some synth, we had the da 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 da. Yeah, if only we had those demos. But um, I remember it, but they were really good. Like we loved them. We thought this was just like amazing. Which is in a way the songs were. And any version would have been quite good. Even the earlier versions of those singles, they, there's a, the songs there, isn't it? It's just the songs there. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really realize how good Mad World was until oh, I don't know, maybe even five years ago. You know, <laughs> okay. Seriously, it was like, and you know, I knew it was great. We were always a little worried that it was there was a bit of it that was a bit close to Cat Stevens' song "Father and Son." Is it? Father and son. Trying to think of the melody though. There's a bit somewhere that is sort of close. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, I, it's. A, it was certainly. A, yeah. I think it's father and son. It might. It might have been another cat scene song, but there's there's a bit in it that is like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so I, yeah, subconsciously, I suppose. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it certainly wasn't a lift or anything, but it was like obviously some things occasionally sound like other things, you know. Yeah. Um, or it's just two chords that sounded the same. <gasps> Clarification corner. The Cat Stevens song Ian is thinking about is Matthew and Son and not Father and Son. Here they are to compare. <sighs> But that song is absolutely, you know, it's like, it's one of the best songs of the 80s, for sure. Yeah, you're definitely. A, you're a disenfranchised teenager suicidal at school. That is your, you know, that is your song. Which well, the entire uh, album, isn't it? That conveys that yeah. kind of teenage yeah. angst perfectly. That's why, it's, I mean, it's amazing how many young people love Tears of Fears because it resonates and it will with every generation because yeah, those feelings will always be there when you're a teenager in, in your early 20s. Definitely. If you, absolutely. I mean, there wouldn't be much else. You know, obviously you'd have, I don't know, Blamange or uh, Soft Cell or other acts that were similar, but nothing. And Abbey. 
Thunder Ballet, Duran, you know, all these great wham, who are pop bands. But like The Hurting is a concept album yeah. and very, very dark, hugely dark and all about primal therapy. But Palatable has so, got these great pop tunes on them. Some yeah. great tunes, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, there, you know, it's not much like that, really. So you could, as a, a troubled kid, you could see that that is just a whole world for you to get into. And you'd listen to it endlessly, you know. Yeah. And the, the sort of audience we got, because Kurt was obviously, he was quite a pop star in a way. He looked good, you know. So Even got, with the braids. The braids, you know, that was, that was, uh, that sold a few records. This <laughs> haircut. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had, they were a teen band, you know, it was like we had screaming girls at the shows mm. for the sort of most of the English, the first big English tour anyway. So when you, at what point, were they Tears of Fears when you met them? Yeah. They yeah. were always, so they introduced you, this is our band, we are Tears of Fears. Uh, yeah. Which uh, the name, I just didn't, it took a long time to get used to it. I always thought it was really weird, which it sort of is. But once it becomes part of the parlance, you know, it's like... Um, you question it. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, perfect for them because it's actually their ethos as well, isn't it? Especially for yeah, the first I mean, album. So it, I mean, to have a name, the songs, the look, that some it's all tied together. That's quite, yeah. quite a smart... The hurting mark. tears of fears. It's, part of, yeah. it's almost like the same sentence, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't market that, could you? Yeah. Like, so without knowing what they were doing but um it was europe yeah it sort of numbered them that's for sure <laughs> so I, I forgot to ask about your initial meeting what was your first impressions of both of them oh um oh, just uh nice you know the, i was i'm about four years older than them which would make no difference now but then i, I was i suppose about 22 or 23 24 maybe if it was 81 and they would still be 18 or 19 so hardly any difference but a little bit I think I was just I was quite impressed by them because they looked good together and they were clearly a a band with you know a thinking band given that they had all that stuff the name and the something to talk about really something to say whether that came over in the first meeting or not I doubt it I think we were just slagging graduate and (laughs) how how shit (laughs) how shit Tony Hatch's son was (laughs) but yeah it was you know it's very teenage so Uh, so was there ever any talk at this time of you actually being a member of the band no no I I guess that sort of it happened quite naturally well it didn't really I mean I suppose it was actually so we'd obviously released say we or they you know it's always hard to know whether it's we or they (laughs) But anyway, we'd released Pale Shelter and Change, which were hugely unsuccessful. I don't think they got in the top 100, which was back then the charts were hugely important. And then we released Mad World and we, I think we were on tour and it was suddenly it was suddenly doing very well, getting a lot of radio play. And I remember we were, me and Roland were in the studio at home and Roland got a call saying they had to do Top of the Pops, which is your major, your first major, major big deal i think we'd done a actually i'm not sure if we had because it was a real shock that we were doing a tv um let alone top of the pops um, so it was top of the pops the first tv i think it might have been because we didn't know because i remember Ryan going well how should we do it because obviously i think the record company assumed it would be him and kurt but i think roland pretty much just decided that we should do it with the four of us me and manny on drums I can't remember if it was the first TV. I'm pretty sure it was because 
it was like, that was a big deal, right? Going to London and doing Top of the Pops. But also you go up for the day and you have to go in, I don't know, say around 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock to do a rehearsal. And then you go out into London to have lunch or whatever, and then go back and film the show with all the, the kids in the audience and stuff. But what they, <laughs> we were told to go and buy clothes after the rehearsal. So we all went to Oxford Street and we were all given 50 quid or 100 quid or whatever. And we all separately went off to buy a top or a T-shirt or, you know, it's really, it's so crap. But (laughs) the weird thing was that we sort of bought all the same types of things. If you look at the first Mad World, the clothes are, it's like some stylist came along and said, right, you wear this, you wear that, without being forced, but it looked like a group. You were aligned. Oh, yeah. You were aligned somehow, yeah. all in from top, I think it was top man <laughs> in uh, Oxford Street. But it was, uh, again, a little bit of synchronicity, but um, we sort of looked half like a, a proper group. And Kurt was very good on that. You know, I don't, as I say, I don't think we've done any TVs before that. That's the wonderful Tears for Fears. That's Tears for Fears, and I really wanted that to get to number one. Mind you, it's still good. One of the singles of the year, anyway. But it's not the easiest thing to do, your first one where you've got to sing mime into a camera, you know. Does it feel weird doing that? Yeah, it's horrible. It's really... I mean, you get used to it, but it's just really crap. It's just the music's always very quiet. Yeah. You're having to sort of move. Hmm. It's, it's just embarrassing. But you do a load of them and you get used to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Once, you're on, once you have hit singles, you're on so many TV shows all the time. Like, I don't know, we were on Top of the Box 20 times or something. You know, it's like it just goes on and on. Let yeah. alone all the other Wogans and the chat shows and the Kenny Everett shows and Jim will fix it. That's always good. Oh yeah. We did that a couple of times. That was great. Was that, what were you, what was the, um, what Who was the, wanted the dream? Fix it? Was it a kid uh, meeting yeah. his fears? No, I think. Uh, I'm sure I wrote that letter when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> glad they didn't get to meet Jimmy Snapple. <laughs> you didn't get picked. <laughs> yeah, remember. that was horrible. No, I remember we gave, what did the kid want? I, either he wanted to be in a random group <laughs> or, <laughs> or I don't even, I'm pretty sure it wasn't even a Tears Fears related thing. Anyway, I think we gave him a small synthesizer or a drum kit or something. Not that we did. It was just, you know, organized. But did you get a Jim or Fix It badge? Yeah. Have you uh, still got it? No, I'm not sure we did. We might no? have. Done. Yeah, can't remember. But he was he was odious even then. Oh, well, really? Then, obviously. You know. uh, yeah, he was vile. He was just so repulsive as a man. Yeah, we just hated him. In um, what way? What was it? Just he was he was very uh, he was very. Um, oh God! It just makes his skin crawl. I, I mean, part of it now is obviously coloured by knowing what he actually was like. But he was just very unpleasant, very arrogant, very sort of confrontational i remember roland he he was walking by us as we were rehearsing and roland said something in french like bonjour or something i don't know why but just for nothing and he he immediately launched into this sort of competitive that he knew more french than roland (laughs) yeah exactly right it was you know from nowhere to be this oh yeah i'm better than you and all this 
Barlett, but uh, yeah, absolute vile man. He was the ultimate kind of hiding in plain sight example, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, just like everyone knew he was creepy at the time, but like the degree to which he was creepy. Listen, as you can see, I have been invaded by a girlfriend who specifically wanted to sit in my chair, and so I'll tell you what, I've got a little job for you. Would you like to take this Jim and fix it badge to my friend there, and then he can put it on himself? Okay, then. And you'll do that. Come over there. Come and sit back down here, please. We have a lot of non-UK listeners, this podcast. So, like, I would just say, if you're not from the UK, don't know Jimmy Savile is, just Google it and you'll you'll understand the context. Yeah. Um, And probably without (laughs) being, uh, uh, you know, alleging anything, I'd say he wasn't alone. Uh, Well, obviously, it's very glitter. You know, I'm sorry this is... No, no, no. So what other TV shows are we on? We're not going to name names, but give us a clue. Give us a clue. Is that a clue? Well, I no, I don't know. I, I mean, there are some stories about some odd people and odd yeah. stories, which are probably urban myths. Clearly, it was a thing. So anyway, the, yeah, I wouldn't say we were in the middle of a paedophile den, but... You know. <laughs> um, uh, on, 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 on a happier note, at this time uh, of Mad Ward's release, you would have been working on The Hurting, I assume. Uh, yes, so that's probably true. End so, of eighty two, going to eighty three. Is that is that when Mad World came out? Mad World came out in eighty two. Yeah, eighty two did it. Well, we were we were touring as well, doing these small little sort of three week tours. Like you'd go you'd go off and do Nottingham Rock City or Leeds and Sheffield and Glasgow, King Tut's in Glasgow. Amazing, just brilliant. Which was our earliest sort of being on the road, sort of. Uh, you know, in one van with a tape recorder, driving around doing those gigs, which were great because you'd go on at sort of about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. Um, um, so that was our first, <laughs> we were shit live. I mean, we were always bad live, but we were, it's sort always? of. Always? Uh, yeah, I think so, really. I mean, personally, definitely, I didn't like live stuff at all. Um, being on stage just is not what I'm keen on. So you're not that keen on performing more just on the the creation. It's not like performing. It's like, that's, you know, I can't perform. It's like like being a seal or something. Um, (laughs) But in terms of like playing music live to an audience. Playing music live, playing one finger lines or pressing a button at the right time. (laughs) And even that managed to go wrong quite a lot. But it was okay being on stage, obviously with an audience, you sort of, it's quite gratifying, I suppose, but it was always slightly weird to me, but not the enjoyable part for me. Although touring is all right, you know, it's great driving around, doing stuff. And some gigs are great, but not many, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. Live, I mean, much later on, did a tour with Peter Gabriel where I played for him and it was amazing. You know, I absolutely loved every what, second of What it. year was that? That was in 1986. It was called the Conspiracy of Hope Tour. Oh yes, yes. And for well, you played on that, did you? Yeah, I played with Peter. I like it was it was amazing oh. <laughs> because I mean I don't know why he asked me really, but like I knew him and I guess he thought I was better than I am. And <laughs> was across the world and not able to do it because he had to do it within a couple of weeks. But that was Manu Kache was on drums. Larry Klein, who was Joni Mitchell's husband, was on bass. David Rhodes, who was always a guitarist, um, and me and Peter. And we did this um, tour in America. It was only like three weeks, I think. But um, the the bill was, get this, it was um, Brian Adams, Lou Reed, the Neville Brothers, U2, and Sting. 
and Peter Gabriel. <laughs> and then after three gigs, Sting reformed the police. <laughs> so it was the police and U2 and Peter Gabriel. <clears throat> like, it was in 86. In 1986, it's called A Conspiracy of Hope. Now, I've heard of this word. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the first, it was obviously the year after Live Aid and Amnesty were figuring out how to raise awareness, make some money, I guess. But we all flew around this America in this one plane and people joined. And by the time he got to New York, it was a giant stadium. And there was, oh God, Miles Davis, Muhammad Ali, you know, it was like ludicrous. You know. So how, how did the police get on? Terrible. I mean, <laughs> what a surprise. Hilarious. Because, this, so here's a good one. So Sting is, well, I can, everyone would, <laughs> would sort of imagine what Sting's like. And he's mm-hmm. pretty much like what you think he's like. What was funny? So this is obviously a charity tour all about raising awareness for prisoners of war or whatever around the world. And it was all meant to be very hippie and very, no profit involved and no one's making yes, a selfless money. act for all. Very yeah. much so, yeah. apart from who's headlining. <laughs> so you've got you two and, the, and basically the police trying to pretend they don't want to headline. They don't care who headlines. <laughs> but of course, the managers are screaming at each other about who's headlining uh, backstage and you know it's like just a little transparency of the rock business where you can say one thing but what, so in in the end they alternated <laughs> i was gonna say it would have made more sense you take yeah into- yeah but it was it was an amazing uh tour like just incredible and peter you know i love peter he's just the best i mean he's and what was the, what was the best song to play live it was great because um we did, I think it was like a 30, 40 minute set. So when we started rehearsing, he, he <laughs> there are a couple of song, Gabriel songs that are so complicated and he was trying to teach me them on the piano. <laughs> Peter, there's no way I can't do this. You know, it's like really get someone who's good. Eventually it, we worked out what I could play. And basically we did Sledgehammer, which is Shock the Monkey, San Jacinto, which is a beautiful, beautiful song. And... My favorite Genesis song of all time, oh, sorry, Gabriel song, Family Snapshot about the assassin, right? Yeah. Which I used to listen to as a teenager, as a fan. And I love Genesis and Peter, you know. So to play that, for me to play that in his band, <laughs> Giant Stadium, that was like, it doesn't get better than that. Great collection of songs. I assume Salisbury Hill as well. Um, no, didn't no? Salisbury Hill. No, I think all the songs he wanted to have some something to. Oh, Biko, obviously. Yes. Which, uh, yeah, yeah. Given that's why he was there. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it'd be a bit weird. He didn't do Biko, wouldn't it? It's like the one time, Peter, yeah. you definitely should do Biko. But it gave yeah. me an insight. I'd, just watching watching Peter on stage, you know, it's like, Jesus, it's a different league when you, when you are a performer, now he's a performer and an amazing singer, writer, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very different league to getting on stage, plugging in and singing your song to doing what he does. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
I wish he'd release more albums. It's been a while. Yeah, he's a very interesting. <laughs> he's always, he's always got so much going on. For all the people who are around him who work with him, he's the most frustrating <laughs> of people because he he does this. He pontificates. Yeah, never finishes. Yeah, but he's just. Uh, there aren't many better, really. Yeah. Now I know if he wasn't prog rock and it would come from another area, he'd be one of the true greats. Yeah, he is. You know. He is. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, back to the hurting then. Yes. So were you in the studio most days for the recording of that, or were you no, recording for sessions? No, the, the hurting very little. We, um, I mean, this is we tr- we were in the studio with the guy, which. Uh, can't remember what song we're doing, but it wasn't very good. It was terrible. Uh, who was the producer? He used to be in Gong. Do you remember the group Gong? Uh, I've heard of them. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a French name. Anyway, he was the p- producer, that, and we did a couple of songs up in London. Could have been, I don't know, Watch Me Bleed or something like that. For me, being in a full rec- recording studio for the first time, I think it was in Matrix or, or something like a proper, you know, proper place, a Wessex. It was great. I just love studios, just loved, loved recording studios. They're just this amazing places uh, for me, certainly where I'm happiest. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Roland Kurt definitely didn't like what happened and certainly how it turned out. I probably didn't even know whether they were good or bad, but would have gone along with whatever Roland said, you know. So the gong member, what, what uh, instrument did you play? Or was he a producer for gong? <laughs> Trying to tie down who, who this yeah, guy is. Yeah, I can't. All I remember is he had a French name. Oh, I'll tell you what. He did. Um, the reason he was doing us was because, I think, because because David, obviously, would have had some choice, you know, would have su- suggested him. He did Enola Gay. Oh, he produced that? Orchestral Maneuvers. So whoever did that was that guy. I've just looked up the about the Enola Gay bomb. Not, not really relevant at the moment, is it? Let's, let's find the Who knows? <laughs> Unless he was involved with that as well. Oh, only credits OMD and Mike Howlett on Mike Howlett. Okay, yeah. Oh, oh yes, it was Mike oh, Howlett. Then. Not French at all. Jesus. No. Why did we think? Oh that? yes, Mike Howlett. Yes, he did do. Yes. Yeah. So he was the guy. Yeah, which didn't go well. But right. I think he had quite a successful. He'd certainly done quite a lot of pop acts or records, but it didn't work anyway. So then, of course, the... yes, yeah, so that was Pale Shelter, wasn't it? That was the oh, was it Pale Shelter? Yes. I don't know how you could get that wrong, really. It's not. It's pretty. You know. Yeah, you can tell by listening to it, comparing it to the the hurting. The hurting version just has more oomph to it. It's just like it's like going from black and white to colour, or from TV have to widescreen. Do you know what I mean? It just just. Have you heard that version? Then? Yeah, because I think it was on one of the box sets, wasn't it? Oh, I don't know. I never listened to those. And that was that was a single version, wasn't it? Oh uh, yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's on the box set. Okay. Maybe I should unwrap it. <laughs> Have you got them then, the box sets? I, I think I was given them. Um, and you've never listened to them? I've never listened to them, no. No, it just seemed like too much hard work. What about the albums themselves? When was the last time you listened to The Hurting or Songs from the Big Chair all the way through, just uh, as a listening I, I, experience? Yeah, I listened to the Songs from the Big Chair because last year we did a film. The classic albums? Yes. Right. So, so research. I, yeah. I thought I'd better do something because they were coming to film. So that was all horrible. <laughs> and did you, do you enjoy the experience of listening to the album or was it more like research uh, yeah, and bringing back memories? Quite, and... It was quite, it was quite analytical. It was quite, uh, I mean, it was good. It definitely held up. I don't think I'd listen. I mean, obviously you hear a few songs on the radio all the time, but I certainly hadn't listened to anything for 20 years before that. So, so if you heard a song on the radio, would you listen to it or just 
Switch no. it off or you wouldn't. No, it just washes over me. I mean, no. it's like, it's always nice, you, you, but like you spot them within sort of a millisecond. <laughs> okay. It's usually everybody. It's always everybody wants to, well. Yeah, or, or shout, yeah. Or shout. So do you not feel an immense sense of pride thinking, oh, yes, that's one of mine. I was involved with that. Like, even if you don't listen to it, think, oh, yeah, you know, there it is again. I would just be like, I would just be telling everybody. If if you hear it in a crowded place, I'm, I'm, I cover that. Yeah, you know, no, I would tell everybody, oi, oi, you, yeah. old lady, listen. This is yeah. That's one of no, mine. A very rarely, I think nothing comes to mind, but very rarely have I used, have I used it as an avenue to, you know. <laughs> a conversation starter at a dinner <laughs> yeah. party. Do you know I, who I, I am? Did, I did once, embarrassingly, but. Um, oh, go on, go on. What happened? What was it? What was the song? Oh, no, I've, oh it was everybody, but. Um, I do remember saying, yes, I, I wrote some of this um, or something and just feeling so horrible as the words come out of your mouth. But imagine if you were someone like that and that song came on and you didn't say it, that would be like, and people next to you be like, you, you never told me you, co- I, would you, I'd, I'd I don't have know. to yeah. tell people that. Wouldn't you? Would you really? Yes. Oh my God. I, it's like, if look, somebody, I, I was talking I, to somebody, and you, you know, these kind of play, dinner party conversations be really dull. And you, you talk to somebody about, like, they're like, I'm going to deal with draft excluders all day or something. And then somebody can tell you, I co wrote this massive hit song that you love. So, what happens, right, in that situation, not in, in the exact, but say you're at a dinner party, which I have been to a few dinner parties, again, not my mm-hmm. favorite environment. But yeah, yeah. Say you're at a dinner party, someone says across the table, oh, yeah, that's Ian, he, he was into his fears, or you're right, everybody wrote. That's the conversation for the rest of the night. Right. Okay. So, that's the downside. Okay. So, you know, it's fine being center of attention. And is it an endless, you know, yeah, tell you of so, what's Roland and Kurt like? Yeah. Yeah, which I've already asked you once. <laughs> a little bit. Um, yeah. More more that they, mostly that people love the records. I mean, yeah. millions of people bought it and millions of people love the records, which is fantastic. Obviously, you know, it's a legacy. Yeah. It's just great uh, for me. And it's pure luck, really. Tiny bit of talent, but mainly luck and mainly Roland. Uh, we owe all this to, but, you know, it was, um, it's an incredible thing to have in your back pocket. But it's, like my kids, they don't give a fuck, you know. That's how, <laughs> how, old are you, how old are your children now? I've got one uh, 15 and one 11. And so the 15 year old has not listened to the hurting. Uh, like, no, he's never listened to the records. He just goes, oh, you're joking. Give me. You've not like shoved the lyrics underneath his bedroom door to say, Mike. I have, I have tr- I actually, with him, I've tried and tried <laughs> to say, look, look how good this is. <laughs> Listen because- to this organ solo on sewing the scene. <laughs> there you go. Because dad's involved. like, no, yeah. I'm cool. No there way. Goes, no. But I do think that in his class, his mates know and they think it's pretty cool. But he's exactly. Obviously. Exactly. But also, it's such a lot. You know, we're not close in age. I'm 64. He's, it's like, this is 40 years ago. <laughs> I, th- I say give it a couple of years and like yeah, maybe. talking to his peers i think it'd be like oh, i'll tell you when i die and he gets the fucking royalties <laughs> he'll like it then yeah. <laughs> happy days yeah yeah, yeah. I, I always want to ask that question about royalties and i know i never get an honest answer but i i, I chickened out of asking chris hughes about that because obviously he's got the the third of the publishing on everybody wants to rule the world yeah which we gave which, it which is a gift really because yeah. So the, the 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 original um he set up the original kind of drum pattern thing the dum 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 mm-hmm. or was that or was that an original no, demo no 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 Roland had that Ro- Roland had that 
he Roland had he had the shuffle uh, mm-hmm. probably on the guitar like it, I think it just actually it was probably on a keyboard because of the down down yeah you know that's a that's definitely a keyboard thing so he'd be going oh you'd play it on the guitar you could play it on both but basically he had that dun 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 down down and that was it and me and him both thought it was lightweight you could probably make a song out of it but is it worth it because it was it just it was just like frothy as as a as as what it implied but chris god bless him recognized it or, or was actually just because we needed another song that was that was essentially the reason we'd never have done it if we hadn't needed an eighth song i know people say we need a single and all that which we probably did but you can't just write a hit single to order it's amazing so is it right that shout and world of world were the last two songs done for the yeah, album uh, they were the last two probably written and and attorney yeah we did the vocal on everybody when we were mixing it in germany i think as far as i remember and shout just went on for so long trying to make it you know it took i think it's three or four months from start to finish but obviously we were doing other things during that time you couldn't work on one song for four months although we would <laughs> it wasn't in, in you know out of the question for us everybody took basically five days to write and record done mm. and shout took three or four months and it's yeah. just like you just don't sometimes or very rarely is it like everybody but the thing with everybody the speed of which it was written and recorded because it was sort of at the same time you you sort of write the bit and then record it and that was it and then you'd write or the guitar solos would happen and, and uh, it happened so quick a we had to do it quickly for time we were due to go off and mix in germany i think or something like that anyway and it's just it was just an effortless experience which for us was quite unique that would that would be extremely rare yeah you know you almost didn't have time to try and think about how to do something differently which is what we sort of used to do but also it's it's you can say it's it's on it's probably a 48 track recording but say it's on 24 tracks you could push up the drums and bass and vocal and it would be a hit you could push up the keyboards and the vocal and the guitar and it would be a hit (laughs) Push, you know like you could just you just pushed anything up and it just sounded amazing yeah like exactly how it sounds it's a real gift that song it it, it, you know it's i wouldn't say it's it's certainly not my favorite but as a how it became this evergreen classic it's it's one of the most played songs on radio in the world ever it's ludicrous i mean it's i mean i would say like shout and head over heels those three it seems to be played all the time they are especially in america yeah, especially in America. But everybody, uh, well, I have these things I'm looking at here. Where are we? Going? So Ian Stanley, in recognition of the great popularity in America, blah, blah, blah. Eight million broadcast performances by everybody and four million by Shout. So it's played twice as much as Shout. So there's a certificate you get given. Yeah, you get every every million. <laughs> these are radio plays. Every uh, million. Uh, yeah. So have you framed any of those? Well, they come framed, thank they God. They come framed. Yeah. So do you just replace the old one that says 7 million, 3 million, and just put I the new throw one those out. away. So, yeah. Uh, otherwise, well, as, I said, as I said to David Bates, like, you know, he's talking about his record collection, you know, sign one of those, put it on eBay. Yeah, you could. Don't, don't throw them away. If yeah. you don't want one of your old ones, 
post it to me. I'll frame it and put it up. You know what I mean? I, that's so you would be that still has a value. If I saw a Bates signed one of his gold Dire Straits discs or Def Leppard discs or something, I'd know he would, was broke. <laughs> <laughs> have you got any gold discs or? or uh, I have a few. Yeah, um, they're going a bit mouldy in the garage. Um, so how does that work then? When you reach a certain certification, they automatically yeah. send you one. The, uh, sort of, but there are so many of them after a certain level. It, it's it's insane. Um, so so again, it just upgrades. So a gold record, you get well, some platinum. Does, like your first one, you might get, I think we got a silver single for Mad World, you know, 200, of maybe 250,000 copies or something, you know, Yeah. Uh, in England. So obviously it's per territory in the UK, rather. It's per territory. So you get them for the UK, you get them for France, Holland, Belgium. Italy, America, Canada, you know, Australia. So how how many have you got for Big Chair then? I, I mean, in the end, you don't, like you could have thousands, literally thousands. But I have, uh, what do I have? I think I have a five platinum one of Big Chair for America. There's in Canada, there's a 10 disc one for, for 10, 1 million. So ten hundred thousands, which is their platinum, is a hundred thousand. I think that's right, or something like that. But honestly, that, yeah, yeah, I know. My wife says I should put them up in a room, but it's like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you see those pop stars or ex-pop yeah, yeah. stars up with their rooms full of sad gold discs, it's like I remember there was a there was a guy who lived next near Chris when he lived in, in Putney. He was the keyboard player in Camel, uh, who, was, who were a great prog rock band actually they were you know yeah. I, you could walk past his front room and he had his one gold record in the middle of this bear <laughs> <laughs> that's um, worse than not having any isn't it, isn't it? Like, and as soon as i see one, like four I, arrows I, pointed to it walking yeah. past his room with his curtains open going oh that's just terrible yeah. <laughs> i do think if he'd ever ever hosted a dinner party you should have had one on the wall behind your chair i think it's a focal point that would be yeah that would have to be in my drug days. What was the question that you bottled out of asking Chris about royalties? What was the question? It was just basically like, because I always, what makes me think about the question? How do they work? Or? Well, no, it's, it's like thinking about the Christmas hits. I remember an interview with Noddy Holder talking about Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah. Merry Christmas, every, everybody. I was getting mixed up with the Shaker Stevens one, which is the everyone, which is the everybody. The song came out in 73 and he's still getting checks every year for like £100,000 or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's his pension that. plan. But in terms of when you've co-written a huge hit like that, yeah, like even 35 years plus later, do you get like an annual check and is it of like a sizable amount or is it? Yeah, basically you get, what you get is uh, the sort of three three or four f- forms of income, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, say you, as a writer anyway, you get, Payments for PRS, which is played on radio and TV. So you get maybe a little bit per, it depends on the demograph of the radio station. But for instance, if it's played on EastEnders in the bar, which is everybody's quite often on there, I think it's about 40 quid, right? And is that shared between the writers? Shared between the three of you, the three writers and the publishing company. So basically okay. four, four ways split or whatever. If it's played on a radio station on top of a mountain in Chile, you get maybe tenth of a cent, you know. Uh, yes. But by the time you add them all up from around the world, and especially America, 
Um, Once you've got 8 million listens, then it becomes quite <laughs> profitable. Yeah. Well, exactly. But that's, yeah. that's just one country. That wouldn't include your films or your sinks or whatever. So you have your PRS, which is performance stuff. You have your publishing, which is something else. Someone might pay you to use it in a movie or TV show or whatever. You get the odd cover. There's not much of Tears Fears that's covered apart from Lord, etc., which was brilliant. You might have you heard the Wurzels doing so in the seas of love? <laughs> That's good. And I don't knock it. You, you're, you're mocking it. I wouldn't have heard it. No. Have you heard it? No. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, I, okay. could see that I was not a hit. I think it was released too soon to the original. All right, you got to give a bit of time. Was you, there was there a parody or was it actually the same lyrics? The Wurzels parody. How dare you? Of the views of the common man and the love train rides coast to coast. DJ's the man we love the most. Could you be, could you be squeaky clean? Smashing the oaks of democracy. The headline says you're free to choose. The egg on your face, mud on your shoes. One of these days they're gonna call it the blue. I am from the West Country. How dare you? Not I, I, know. I I think <laughs> I went to a gig of those once, even so. Um, but uh, they were good. They were good. Oh, they had their, they had their number they one, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, did they not do parodies of songs? Like, you know, I, well, they did like, was it Don't Look Back in Anger? Or like, <laughs> I'm trying to think what other ones they did actually. Oh, any Morrissey. <laughs> I put one on for the kids. They did like some kids' songs for them to dance to. And there was one that of theirs, I can't remember what it was now. It, it was a cover of something. They must be dead. Oh, I can't I'm actually going to Google the Wurzels. It's more embarrassing than looking at porn, isn't it, really? The Wurzels. I don't know. Did, uh, did the lead singer become, wasn't it, didn't it become someone in the Wurzels? It was Ad Cutler in the Wurzels originally, it wasn't was. it? Yeah, he um, wasn't happy enough just being a Wurzel. He had, no, he had you, think, you think he'd be enough. He was the star of the show, right? It's <laughs> weird. Crazy. Weirdly, they don't, they don't give you details on the albums on Wikipedia. <laughs> it's all grayed out. You can't. Yes, never mind the Bullocks. Here's the Wurzels, 2002. Oh, that's, so... that's, that's their classic. Yeah. Yeah. Good to see yeah. that. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get off the Wurzels, shall we? Anyway, yes. So, yeah, so uh, there is, yeah, revenue. Uh, yeah, revenue. So you do get, yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's a, it's a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, Basically, on that one song, on that third of, that, of the publishing on one song, you could you could live off that for the rest of your life, in theory. Uh, yeah, yes, you could. You could. Uh, yeah, yeah, quite happily. It's, you know, by the time it's split, I suppose, because the publishing company gets it, but as a as an earner, it's a over its lifetime oh i don't know i can't put a figure on it but it's yeah it's huge but you know i'm used to it now but i am far more from it now than i did 30 years ago or 40 years ago 30 years ago because of this it's it everybody in, as it's as a song as i say has turned into this evergreen it is just continuous now once you get once you sort of are in the top 20 or 30 of most played songs it's a staple and yeah and you'll just continue to play it just keeps on going so I assume, like, 
I remember thinking, well, you know, this will last up until maybe 1990 or something, but it just accelerates. It's crazy. Uh, and if I'd known how much it was, I would have argued against giving Chris. Uh, yeah, that third would have been a half. <laughs> have you calculated how much more money you'd have made from it if that oh, were the case? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. You have. You've got, you got a figure in your head of how much it would have been. I, have, I know how much he owes me, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so was, was Chris given that as basically as a, a thank you for pushing? Pretty much. Look, that, that would, it, that's a cheap shot. Uh, and <laughs> as much as I'd like to wind him up by saying yes, uh, clearly he brought a lot to it yeah i mean sometimes in production it's it's a it's a gray area of yeah because i don't I think i asked him that about at yeah. what point is a producer's contribution does it become yeah. a songwriting credit because there must yeah. be so many gray areas there there are and some producers mainly american are incredibly upfront and they have no shame <laughs> yeah. that way about it and demand their third or whatever it is but um I think I, th- I was pretty, look, this would be down to Roland anyway. I mean, my contribution is good. It's, it's solid, whether it's worth a third, hard to say. So what exactly would you say your contribution was mm. in, the song, in the arrangement and songwriting? Well, in terms of the songwriting, uh, I wrote the, the middle eight. The, um, There's a room where the, that, that, bit. that bit. That's yours. That's, that's mine. That's- I'm sorry, uh, but that's the best bit of the song. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. That is the best bit of the song. I kind of uh, like... the guitar solos are the best. The two guitar solos. They're... Yeah, that second one is they quite are amazing. Fucking extraordinary. And you've ever they recorded? Oh yeah, absolutely. And is it just two? I think Dave Dave Baskin said it was like two takes of Neil. Yeah, Neil. Yeah. I mean, Neil. Neil was just a genius guitarist and a really egoless. Neil, he's, he's incredible. Most players of that standard have a very particular and will tell you how it should sound and all this stuff as a session musician. Neil is just one of the nicest natural players and just plays the guitar because he loves it. But um, to come up with that solo, and the, you know, there's not much to work against. It's, um, it's, it's like a pedaling A or whatever, the D or whatever the note is. So there's not, there's not really a chord change. You know, most mm. guitars, you work around a chord sequence. A chord sequence you can work over, yeah. sort of improvising on one note. But All the right. scales and notes that he's hitting are insane. And the first, it was the first, the first half is the first take and the second half is the second take. Yes, that's what he said, yes. That's amazing, uh, isn't it? And that is like, wow. And if you, I, I still, when I do listen to it on the radio and I, they actually play to the end. I'm still marveled by his choice of notes and what he actually does there, the vibrato and everything. It's absolutely, it's a staggering bit. Okay, back to the middle eight though. So you, so was so it just- the eight, wrote the keyboard, you know, sort of the part that ties a lot of it together. The do, 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 do. Oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna <laughs> go into it. Look, okay, do that bit again. So I can just, just try and find that bit again, just- Well, the flute bits, Oh, let any keyboard bit on it, basically. Right. So, so you were in the instrumental section that was the middle yeah. eight, and yeah, yeah, yeah. given that to Rowan to then sing a melody and do the lyric for. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yes, exactly. I remember it, we just, we needed it to lift and to sort of get a bit fiery, so the guitars come powering in there. You know, sort of. It's only a few chords, but it's uh, it does lift the middle of the song. It gives Absolutely, it yes. Dynamic, I think it you know, it takes it to the next level, doesn't it? 
Sort of does, yeah. Yeah. It completes it. I mean, it's quite an odd structure. As a, it's a weird, it's a very weird structure for a song, yeah. really, because it doesn't really. No, there's this repeat, middle bit. Does it? It just. It doesn't yeah. repeat. No, it's hard to know. Which is why you see these terrible covers of it. Have you heard the Shane Ritchie version? I, I did feature on on one of the episodes. Oh, God, I can't. For Shane I don't think Rodan quite conveys. Um, sorry, Kurt quite conveys the melody in the same way that Shane does. I think really? if Kurt had wrote, heard the Shane version first, it might he have, would have like, given it a bit more ham. Yeah, it needed a bit more ham. I think Kurt sings it just too yeah. cleanly. And, like, did, yeah. you listen, did you hear the Trevor Horn version? With, with, with Robbie Williams, yes, I have. Oh. That, yeah. I mean, that's cartoon. It's just awful. Well, he um, is cartoon, isn't he? I can't like the arrangements on some of those songs on the album. I like some the version of Slave to the Rhythm. I think that's, that's yeah. a nice version. Great. And, you know, Trevor, obviously. But fucking hell, why pick <laughs> Jesus. But everybody, it was, it was really because uh, Roland had the bit, which he always, Roland, without Roland, there's no tears for this. You know, it's like, mm. it's just a given. He would write all the words, most of the tune, you know, it's just like, but. If you're there, the the record wouldn't be the same without Chris or me. Yes, that that was that was the kind of the alchemy and the magic of the album. Really, was that that nucleus of you, Chris and, and Roland, wasn't it? Yeah, sort of was. Uh, and yeah. Dave, and um, Dave and Dave Engineering. Yeah, and Dave, just the you know the sort of the minds in the room. Obviously, there's a lot of talent in one corner of the room huge amount of talent in Roland and the rest of us do. All I thought you were by yourself then, sorry. Then <laughs> <laughs> Roland was over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but it, for periods of time during that record, it would really work together very, you know, brilliantly. Mm. And I can't remember really getting there again in my career, maybe a couple of times, but that was quite special how that was at that time. And also not, not to discredit Kurt, who would turn no, up no. every now and then and add to it. You know, yeah, I was going to add, that was the question I was going to ask. Never about take Kurt. away yeah. from it. Uh, he always bought something, just lying there asleep after he'd been out all night, you know. <laughs> but he lived about uh, four, 400 yards away, 500 yards away across the road. And Roland lived in town. And Chris, where did Chris live? He was in town. Oh, yeah, he was on the hill. Yeah, Bathwick Hill. But it was a brilliant time, like, the three of us, the four of us, and then all the wives and girlfriends. We were all very close. It was a hot summer, you know, whatever it was. 80, 80, what's this, 85? It would be 80, well, 84, I guess, is when yeah. it started. Yeah. yeah. And we just all lived in this house and made this record. It was it was quite like, you imagine a Laurel Canyon record, mm. a Neil Young record, or, you know, one of those. 
it was just like that. It was it was brilliant. And occasionally we'd go up to London to do some uh, you know, stuff we couldn't do in my house. Uh, can I just ask one more question about Rule the World? Want, yeah, yeah. The horn, synth horn part. That was used live and was um, also on oh, the urban was added on. That was that added was, on. I was going to say, was it ever like the original thing you took it off? No. Um, I'll tell you what that was. I think all I remember is that we were... We, we were on tour in America and we needed a 12 inch of everybody, a remix, whatever. And Chris did it back in London and he put the brass on. Um, he put that part on. Now, I'm, what I can't remember is, I, I can't imagine that he, he came up with that part. I think we had it before and Roland would have sung it or I would have played it. And we decided that we didn't want it um, and didn't use it. So was there a recorded version with that part on? originally there's, or was a, it just... there's a 12 inch with it on yeah but i'm saying um oh of the it, single yeah for the album when you're making the album yeah. was uh, there a chord no. version so no. it was like an idea you had you didn't use and then chris eventually yeah. used it i think so i think so that's i'm sure yeah that that's how it would have been I, I again i could be doing chris a huge discredit here and he came up with it not that it's that great, but you know, it's something. Yeah, I was going to say, because if it was on there originally, you took it off and it was the right thing. It was the do. right thing to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, it is a little yeah. bit cheesy, isn't it? Yeah, I think we would, I think probably we had it and it was it would probably have been a bit of a joke that we would play over it every now and then. And then Chris would have enjoyed putting it on his 12 inch remix for those reasons. More of an in joke than anything. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I just want to clarify, I really don't want to, um, what's the word, not give Chris enough credit for this because the rhythm of that tune, of that song, is um, fairly extraordinary. Now, Roland yes. had the shuffle, right? He knew it was dun-da-dun-da-dun. There are a million songs that go dun-da-dun-da-dun, but the way it's done is amongst the most tasteful, cleverest version i've ever heard of a shuffle yeah because yeah. like, I, like i said in, the, in one of the episodes that's already a hit before you even put a song on top of it just yeah. subconsciously you, you you're attracted to that there rhythm it just you it gets you you're grabbed already just put something good on top of it and you've got a, a massive hit yeah you're dead right it's incredibly simple but clever because the obvious thing is is to make it go for sort of everything to go like say simple minds up on the catwalk or something, you know, that's like a... Or the waterfront, they didn't... A waterfront, sorry, yeah, waterfront. That's like a big shuffle. But the way Chris and Roland did it together, something that is between the shaker and the hi-hat, and it's something, it's those that make it do what it does, and it's just a sublime rhythm, absolutely. One of the best pop rhythms you'll ever hear. Absolutely, yes, definitely. Purely down to Chris and Roland. So... That's his genius in his own way, let alone making us do it. And, and it was this, but, you know, who knew what it was when we made it? We still, we thought it was pretty good, but it was always Shout was the was the one. Yeah, that was one that was going to be the big smash and this was just yeah. this silly little pop thing at the end yeah. of the sessions. Yeah. Exactly. God, the album, without everybody, we wouldn't be having this conversation, put it that way. There was talk, and I think... Dave Bates in the interview also said there was other songs, but there was twice in interviews, Kurt and Roland said there were three songs and we chose everybody from it. But you've said in interviews, there just wasn't much material there. So we had to use everything. So there there weren't three songs. They picked one from, and that one was everybody. Jesus. I I can't think what other, the only other songs there would be, would be B-sides. 
Uh, and they were they not were, really songs, were they? they were more kind of instrumentals. Really, no. than, yeah. I mean, the closest we heard was there's a song called When in Love with a Blind Man. Yes. Which is part of the working out or became yes. one became the other, which would have been a, a good song in its own right. That's a beautiful. It's, an, it's a lovely lyric. little two minute. I actually told, uh, <laughs> I edited it out of the interview with Chris Hughes. I don't know if you've heard the interview, but I actually told him what my revised track listing of songs from the big chair would be. Oh, very good. And, oh, after the fact, and he's very polite about it. He's like, say, yeah, yeah that's that's valid point of view. <laughs> why am I telling Chris Hughes? This is what you should have done. It's like, well, they could do it. I did it in the end, the order. Oh, was it yours, was it? Because I thought it was yeah. Chris that... No, bollocks. Okay, can I tell you what he did wrong then? Uh, no, well, the reason I mention it is is because I put one in Love and the Blind Man uh, with the Blind Man in as well as my revised ah. track listing because it's like a motif, like you've got the broken ah, head yeah. over heels motif. So I don't mind that. Motif. I think that's good. Where, yeah. where did it go? So I, I had, because I, I, I have this theory that you don't start an album with a single mm. because you started with something they've not heard before. So yeah. I had it with, and I love a long intro to an album. So I started with The Working Hour, then Shout, then Rule the oh, World. Oh, you really like Welcome to the Pleasure Dome? Yes. <laughs> Long intros. Yes, definitely. Yes. And I said that to, I, I interviewed Stephen Lipson. I said that to him about, yeah, 13 minute song. Come on. That's how you start an album, right? That's great. Every album just start with 13 minute song. And end of, end of side one, I had I Believe, because it's like a nice ballad to end the side. Yeah, and fair enough. Side two of the Fanfare of Mother's Talk. Yeah. Then you have When in Love with a Blind Man. Yeah. And then you have As the Album is. So that was my, that's my revised. It's good. But I think what you did is pretty good, I think, to be fair. Well, it's to be honest, uh, there was this big, you know, everyone, or I've heard people talk about it, and at the time, everyone was going, oh, God, what, how are we going to do this? We don't, it was, it's really maths. <laughs> it's like, I remember it going, this is not hard. This is like, if you, as long as you've given that you start with shout and you end mm. listen. Yeah, everything else falls into place. Right, what, you know, you're not going to follow shout with everybody, but everybody has to be on side one. The you know you wouldn't have head over heels. You need something on side two. So working out is the obvious one. You sort of then obviously everybody there's the another single mother's talk because you have to put it somewhere. <laughs> you know and then uh, then it's I believe it's like it's not hard. It's only eight songs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I want, before we get into the other songs on Big Chair, I want to go back a little bit to um, the hurting, oh, yeah. on the hurting sessions and the songs. That you started to to collaborate on yeah nothing really i mean not well, on the hurting well, itself because yeah. that's all Roland's after songs, that but yeah. the b-sides and, yeah, and yeah, other yeah. songs around that so yeah. um do you remember anything specifically about the hurting sessions because it seems like they were quite very they were long and drawn out and yeah i think they were quite painful i wasn't <laughs> much of them Roland kurt went off to london with chris and ross and yeah it's it's just it's quite painful i, I don't really know why i didn't go well obviously it wasn't asked but i yeah i don't know I, I really wasn't around for much of the hurting when they were recording eventually they did come back to bath and they worked in crescent for a bit and i did the trumpets on mad world with a modular synthesizer and stuff like that And a couple of overdubs, probably. So how many tracks from the album are you actually... Can oh, you, yeah. Really don't know. Not many. I doubt whether I could name all the, all the songs anyway. Maybe three, maybe okay. none. 
Or maybe, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, I really don't know. Okay, so, so, so if I'm credited. Uh, yes, you are credited. That's oh, am what, I? Yeah, yeah, and Manny's credited as well. Oh, that's kind. <laughs> maybe I did more than I think. I just can't really remember. And on the liner notes, it's Tears of Fears is run, Kurt Manny, Ian Stanley, and then additional personnel are the people oh, playing. That's the hurting, is it? Yeah, that's the hurting. So your credit is part of Tears of Fears with Manny. Wow. That's, I wonder, and that's the original credits, is it? I assume so. It might have been the box set credits. I'm not sure. Actually, to right. be honest, I had the original vinyl, and I think that was the same credits. Yeah, it was the four okay. of you, and then Fair additional. Enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I just, I can't remember the hurting talk, as I say, because I don't think I was that involved. Right. Do you remember hearing it for the first time? Did they like, bring it I to you when it's finished? It during, you know, they'd come back with things. All we wanted to do in, in the studio in my house and in our records was make things sound big. That seemed, I don't know why that was such a fascination, but when you first start recording and engineering, everything sounds really tiny and, you know, it's like, sounds shit, basically. But until you learn space and how, you know, EQ and placing of instruments and levelling and all that <laughs> everything does sound pretty awful which is why most demos and home recordings they're quite easy to make bigger and better sounding records so we were obsessed with things making big and chris and ross as the ninja made i don't know i mean if I, I haven't heard it so i don't think it does sound that big but comparatively it sort of was i mean they certainly captured something mad world is a brilliant version of that song but again, I'd say the demo was pretty close. You know, yeah, had, yeah. Bernie would have been very, very similar, had all the same bits on. Same with Pearl Shelter, similar with Change, sound, uh, start of the breakdown. It, yeah, I mean, The Hurting was, really was a bunch of songs that got recorded. And then as we transgress from that era to Songs from the Big Chair, that was a bunch of songs that got written and recorded and produced by all of us sort of thing. Do you see what I mean? It's yeah. Like yeah. Very, the first one is a very traditional band, make a record type thing without, no, I'm not saying playing it or anything, whether it's programmed or whatever, but um, very traditional sort of thing. The other, because of this huge uh, advantage of having a home studio where we could record and work at our ease in my house, uh, that was that was a massive, a massive thing. Most groups never get that facility. Uh, so that would be, and me and Roland love machinery. We love technology. We love synthesizers, desks, compressors, all, all that microphones. It was like that. Was, we really wanted to learn that, learn the studio. Kurt had little interest, but he, he knew enough. But basically it was me and Roland. So that's how we started buying equipment. And we'd end up with fair lights and loads of keyboard, you know, ridiculous amount of gear. And then... We, we sort of owned that studio and then we built the Wolf Hall, which, you know, which is a proper, it was a proper full-on residential recording studio where the Smiths recorded, the cars, you know, loads of bands. It was like a proper, that we built the studio outside of Bath for us to make the third record, Sowing the Seeds, which never happened. Yeah. <laughs> Annoyingly. <laughs> so, you know, me and Marilyn were basically building a studio together with Chris, sort of who came in on the Warhol, but um, the studio in, in our house, it was, you know, once we bought the Soundcraft desk and we had a, a Mitsubishi digital 32 track machine, all that, that was, a, you know, that was a good studio. 
It was like we could do all the keyboards and most a lot of stuff there. So we were able, for instance, what that gave us was the ability to demo. So we had with Shout in its bare bone form was, you know, this long sort of droney type thing. But And me and Chris were always just wanted it to be a dark, huge rock song. So I was saying, look, we're going to put real drums on. So while Chris and, uh, sorry, Kurt and Roland were doing some video, I think, around around the house they were up on the hill behind the house it must have been mother's talk yeah it it was mother's talk yeah me and chris were demoing live drums sounding really rock drums you know Mm. over shout with turning the guitars up and putting them through fuzz pedals and stuff and roland i remember like it was it turned it it, like in studios sometimes you get that sort of 30 second inspiration then suddenly you see how the track should be from then on uh, and it's just, it's an opening of the curtains, you know. And then it's months of dog work to get it to how you saw it at that second. But that's quite often the case. You, you can be working on a song and like suddenly you go, okay, got it. I understand what this is meant to be. And then it's all about the dog work of doing it. But I remember we were at that moment and the wind, it was a hot day and the windows were open of the studio and Roland and Kurt were just walking up the drive. And I just turned it up as loud as, and Roland, you could see his face just go, oh my God. But was it, is it, that's amazing, oh my God, or what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it ended and he shouted up from, I don't know if they were filming there, he just shouted up, that sounds amazing. Oh, <laughs> And uh, you just knew it. But I'd always known that with that song. That was a given for me. That was what it needed. Yeah. So the thing about talking about shout now. So we're yeah. moving forward. We'll move back again in a little bit. But yeah. move forward. To me, it's probably my favourite song of the eighties. It's one of the songs. It's where it began. My love for Tis Fizz began with this song. as like a twelve. It kind of blew my mind. I kind of worked backwards from there. Everyone talks about how amazing the chorus is, and it is, but not enough credit's given to the verse. So mm. I assume that was your contribution was coming up with the yeah. verse. Yeah, it's a great verse, and the pressure of having to get a verse to match that chorus. Yeah. Knowing you've got to kill a chorus. How how did you approach that? Yeah, well, uh, so yeah, uh, like Roland, his original, like you know, everyone that well, I say everyone, I see we're household names, but uh, <laughs> Roland had played me. Uh, I'd been around his house on a Sunday morning or Sunday, and he played. He just got a Prophet Five, and quite often when you buy a new synthesizer. It, you, you get a sound and that inspires you. It's the sound that inspires you off the keyboard. Nothing else, it's just like, and he had the sound and he just had three notes and the chorus. And so he just said, listen to this, and the drum machine. So he just goes, shout, shout, let it all out. These are the things and do with that, come on. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's just fucking amazing. It's the simplicity of it, the nursery rhyme-ness of it, the darkness of the three bass notes, and the football anthem, you know, you, I, could, I just knew immediately, it was like, this is huge. This is just huge. Uh, regardless of anything else, it was like, it was, you just, it's like the hardest thing is to write a cliche that sounds fresh. And that is, that was it in a nutshell. In fact, it was three or four cliches in a nutshell. <laughs> and uh, shout, shout, let it all out. It, it's like, I'm talking to you, you know, come on. It's like, it's a no brainer, although, I have off. I think I even remember saying at the time, like these are the things I can do without. I said, well, what are the, mm-hmm. what things actually? 
But that's the genius though, because it can apply to anything in your life. Say, but, yeah, right. But, and so if I if I had pursued that, you could imagine it could have ended up with some awful list song like Oh so uh, yeah. Pretty girls start the fire or yeah. something. <laughs> of the yeah. emotions, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are the things I can do with that. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you list them, yeah. <laughs> Thank God, uh, thank God we didn't go down that road. Um, but uh, yeah, so he had that. And then he, in his head, he thought it was going to just do that forever for about five minutes. And I think we recorded five minutes of that, uh, just repeating and just getting very, there was some John Lennon song that he thought it was like. That's how he saw it. I saw it as this is going to be a huge international rock single, or not rock single, single that turns us from a team band, which right. is what we were, yes. to uh, the next level. Without, with, look, I say it now, it wouldn't be that <laughs> precise of thinking, but it would it would be along those lines, knowing what it could do if we got it right, sort of thing. Given that the other songs, you know, we've had, we've got Working Hour or Head Over Hills or, you know, very much, much more, far, far more uh, evolved songwriting than before. So this album was definitely heading that was going to be that way. It was like a leave the screaming girls behind, as great as that was. <laughs> it wasn't actually, it was horrible. It was really like, this has to have a verse. And I remember just going up to the piano and, you know, you just hit a chord and think, okay, that works. And it's only C to D to C to D back to the A minor, but it gives you a lot of power. Trying to get a chorus to lift is always the hard thing in a pop song, unless it's just brilliant writing, say. But you'll hear pop songs on the radio that have been forced for the chorus to stand out way, whether it's a production trick or whatever. But because the verse, in, in this one, the verse rises and the chorus actually drops. It's a reverse of what you would normally expect in a classic. And you notice it most in the third verse. Mm -hmm. That to me is the, is the key part of the song. And when you take in Daniel Guard, because that's when it really starts yeah, yeah, yeah. really elevating. And that's, that's when you, I think that's when it becomes, because it's a great song to it. It's this genius song. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, it's uh, it's it's it treads a fine line between being a dirge and working in the wrong in the wrong hands, which I would give Chris and Dave great credit to because the, the the mix on it is amazing. But um, mm -hmm. just keeping a, a, Chris's light touch of keeping the arrangement right, that it's not just all doomy. You know? Yeah. And then, of course, once we to the middle bit and it starts to explode and it just goes crazy with the guitar solos and all this stuff then it's like game over but uh it, it does it's a very difficult thing to pull off a track that long that is very dark 
but it works yeah you know it's, it's just great it's great vocals it's great everything about it is is just sort sort of perfect for what it is yeah do you remember the first time you heard it finished in the studio yeah and did you think this is this is this is it this is, this yeah, is a smash we like we already had that even though we couldn't we couldn't ever mix it or balance it right in while we were making it i think the first like i always knew it just from the chorus the from the words the nursery rhymes of it i thought okay maybe it's not a hit maybe radio hate it or whatever but it's 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 our shot and it nearly wasn't a hit i think again bates had a, a lot to do with that keeping it in the charts and now it's it's history it was a slow rise it was yeah very slow yeah. and very nervy it was like it was all or nothing you know it would have been yeah. america seemed to mind you it came out second in america so uh, there was a certainly a chance where it wouldn't get in the top 30 and that was it to give it context which release moved back a little bit to 83 so your first songwriting credit is on a b-side the conflict which is credited to Orzabal Smith Stanley. That was a piece oh, of change. Oh, change, is it? Okay. Do you remember that? Do you remember, do you remember uh, the first it, time you contributed with, to the songwriting? Yeah, yeah. Well, so those B-sides, there were quite a few of them. And mm. I wouldn't say they were, they were more... Because the conflict is more of a song. The rest of them are kind of instrumentals, aren't they? You're talking about the Marauders and yeah. My Building, Big Chair, Pharaohs. Yes. Now some This of one actually has, a vo- actually has a, like a Kurt Smith vocal on it. So it's actually more a bit That's more it. of a song. When one of us is making the other is taking There's nowhere to end When one of us is trying the other is lying There's nowhere to end Was that actually a co-written? Is it not the one with... Rule 303, is that a different one? There's one... Oh, no, that's Empire Building. Yes. yes. Right. Empire Building. That was great. Yes, exactly. They were all sort of exercises in music, concrete or sampling, you know. Yes. Um, so very few songs. You're right. Yeah, the conflict... I can't, you know what? I can't remember it. Okay. I assume that we had... It was me, Kurt and Roland, probably no engineer at home, and we had to do a B-side. And you, you're given a day, and you have to make it. So I would have... Unless we got an engineer down, which I doubt it. I can't, I'd have to listen to it, to be honest. I remember the title. I can't remember the song at all. But the B-sides were very, very important to us because we were all pretending to be artistic. And, you know, <laughs> we were very precious about everything. Typical arrogant pricks, really. The B-sides, like uh, Empire Building and um, Marauders and all that, were you know, they were a real ability where you had no pressure and you could even though you had to do it very quickly, but that was okay. You could really do anything you wanted. No yeah, idea. sure. And were they mostly just finished off in one day? Or was it some work? Yeah, involved? yeah, oh, pretty much always. They were always fast. And yeah, you just, it was just a thing. You never took, never took any time over B-sides. But can, you, often, can you hear this in the background? Go on, play it. Wow. Does that ring any bells? Uh, no yeah it sort of does because that's credited to audible smith uh, Stanley. Yeah. yeah i think mainly because they're in the room um yeah sorry a memorable day it's quite nice actually i quite like yeah the conflict yeah but i can't believe it i thought b-sides i can't yeah 
B-sides for change. Are... Yeah, because one of the few ones with the vocals to just kind of stand out. Then yeah, there's a succession of the instrumental ones. You know, there are B-sides like Pharaohs and Big Chair. You know, they, they were hugely important to us. Pharaohs was great. Pharaohs, although it's a sort of version of everybody wants to rule the world. That's what makes it good. I think that's, it's yeah. really a very yeah, original thing, especially for that time in 85, to have a, a B-side yeah. that's reflecting the A-side was really I know. Um, a cool thing to have. Yeah, uh, and it just was cool, and it sounded cool, and it was, it was. I really liked the piano on it. End of part one of the interview. That interview was really, really, really enjoyable. Um, and do compare and contrast the two versions of Big Chat, Ian's and mine. See what you think. And thanks again to David Bates and Carol at Helium, and also uh, Chris Hughes, who initially sent me off the path. David Carroll's name, which led me to Ian, and then David's contribution in securing the interview. So it took a while getting there, but it was well, well worth it. So again, thanks to David Bates, and, and check out his two-part interview as well, because if you have any interest in Tears of Fears, you should definitely check that one out. There's some really fascinating stuff in that interview. So enjoy the rest of Pharaohs, and I will see you very soon for part two. Adios, amigos.
I'm also trying to get Ian Stanley to do this. Uh, he sent me a nice email saying he doesn't really like talking about Tears of Fears, but he'll, I was supposed to email him after the, our chat. So if you can put a word in for me, that'd be great. Uh, I will, while you're here right now. I would love to chat to him. I will. Right. But I mean, you and Ian was the two people I really want to most talk to because I've not heard like an in-depth interview with either of you talking about your time with Tears of Fears. So I was really desperate to get both of you uh, for the podcast. Right. I've written, just finished talking with Mark regarding Tears of Fears. I told him you were the genius. <laughs> he is very nice to talk to. I've just finished. I started at 1 p.m. and I've just finished at 4 p.m. That's me finding someone who would listen. <laughs> uh, it was pretty good. I was honest and there were bits I didn't want to talk about and he was fine. So you could do it. Maybe not three hours, but give him some time. Uh, and there you go. Da -da 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 -da. Fingers crossed then. Thank you for that. 